Good morning. Uh, would you turn with me to our reading this morning, which is found in the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians. We'll be reading in chapter 3. If you want to use the blue Bible that's in the pew or the chairs, it's on page 981. We'll be reading uh, the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 3. We're continuing to focus on the resurrection and how the resurrection affects our present life uh, and how the hope of the resurrection affects our, 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 the hope of the future resurrection affects our present life. So, chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let us pray. O Lord, bless us and open our eyes that we might know your word that we might draw all the more to Jesus Christ. Lord, that we might manifest his resurrection life for your glory and honor. Amen. Now, as uh, an introduction this morning, I think it's really important to speak to some of the things that Paul says in these first verses about the Jews. Because passages like this have been misunderstood, abused, misused in terrible ways in our history. Uh, For some, it would justify an attitude of anti-Semitism. That if Paul thought these things, we can think these things in this way. We misunderstand what he's saying. He's speaking about religious differences, uh, the Jews' rejection of their Messiah. But he, use, he does use strong language. Uh, 
Uh, for instance, when he calls them dogs, he is underscoring the fact that you think you are kosher and clean in all your food laws. And they were according to Jewish law. But in terms of what it is before God, now that you've rejected God's Messiah, you're like dogs that feed on refuse, that eat on dead carcasses. That's what your eating has become. And then he says, you think you're keeping the law, but you're actually doing evil and you're seeking to oppose this Messiah that is the savior of the whole world. And you're trying to stamp it out and refuse it. And, and you call it good, but indeed, you're evil workers. And then he takes the most cherished sign of all, circumcision, a sign originally and truly in the Old Testament to indicate the need that all of us have of the depth of our sin and that our very hearts must be renewed. Our very hearts must be circumcised to use the language in the Old Testament. Uh, we have to have heart surgery and this declaration that we are weak and helpless and must have God's grace was turned into a thing of pride, a thing of we're special. We don't have to follow everybody else's rules. We have our own particular rules and we can do whatever we want to and actually become a reason why God should accept us because we do good. So this sign that was meant to underscore how evil we are as human beings has, with all the other things, turned into a reason that you should accept us on our own goodness. So what was circumcision, Greek peritome, had been turned into mutilation, katatome. You recognize the tome like appendectomy, right? Same little word. Of cutting, so really he's he's saying to recall a past history when Elijah was confronting the gods, uh, the uh, uh, pagan priests, and they weren't getting much action out of their gods when they were asking him to bring fire down on, and so they get more and more desperate, and finally they do what they always did: they start cutting themselves in order maybe to get the gods to look at him, in order for the gods to be pleased with them. And Paul says, now, if you reject Messiah, your circumcision is just like a pagan mutilation. So, actually, this may be stronger than you think it is, right? Very strong. But it's a religious statement. It's not a personal statement. In fact, bear in mind that Paul, when he's really writing about the Jews, and remember, Paul is a Jew, right? Paul has a vested interest in his people, you know, so concerned for his people. But he's writing about this in Romans 9. He says, it, I could be cursed for their sake. It's a shocking statement. They didn't mean little bit. He's saying... It's almost as though if I could be cursed and sent to hell and it would bring salvation to them, I would do it. That's pretty, pretty all in caring for the, his fellow Jews. And he 
suffered over and over and over again, seeking to get the gospel to those Jews. <laughs> he would get thrown out of his synagogue, and did he, when he left, he said, well, I hate you, I'm never going to do that again. No, he goes into the next synagogue, and the next one, and the next one, for years. <laughs> he loved them. He loved them. The New Testament calls for us to have the deepest love and concern for the Jewish people. That they might know Jesus Christ. That we might love them as human beings first, of course, as we love everybody else. And that we have this deep concern. Also, just for the record, as, uh, as, the, as Peter put it in uh, Acts chapter 4... He's talking about God's plan to bring Christ to the cross. He says, they were all gathered together through God's plan, both Herod, who was raised as a Jew, and Pontius Pilate, who was a Gentile, along with all the Gentiles and Jews to kill Jesus. So here we are. Some people, apparently, in history, the Jews killed Jesus. The Gentiles killed Jesus as well. In fact, the way Peter put it in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, is you, speaking to the Jews, crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Who are the lawless men? We are. We're the lawless people. Who beat Jesus? Jew or Gentile? Gentile. Who put a crown of thorns on his head? Jew or Gentile? Gentile. Who mocked him and spat on him? Who flayed his flesh until it was open from his back down to the bottom of his legs? Gentiles. Who put the nails in his hands? Gentiles. Please. I know there's kind of a special case. We've had recent things happen. Uh, brothers and sisters, you must have the deepest love for our Jewish people. And you must have a complete ownership of your participation as Gentiles in the crucifixion of Christ. Okay. All right. Odd introduction. Agreed. Okay. <clears throat> now. Living the Resurrection as our title. And I'd like to add a little subtitle. I'm borrowing this from a a theologian who writes on the resurrection. But a different way to be human. I love this. A different way to be human is living in the resurrection. Because until the resurrection, there was one life on this earth... And since then, there's a whole nother way to live on this earth in living out the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so, you see the, our three points that uh, we count on him. It means we trust on him. We, we depend upon him. We count on him. We center on him. We conform to him. So, we count on Christ here in uh, verse 3. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence 
in the flesh. When you say we worship by the Spirit of God, you're saying we can't even worship on our own. We, we, we can show up and we can go through the motions and we can sing and we can read and all this. But as to true worship from the heart and true adoration to God and trust in God, and we can't even say the first thing or think the first thing or feel the first thing. We worship by the Spirit of God. We must have the power and grace of another to do what we cannot do ourselves. It is utterly beyond us, even to worship him. Strong statement. And then he adds to this, we glory in Christ Jesus. This word many times is translated boast. And I honestly, in the past, have had some trouble, you know, trying to get it. Well, what does that mean that I boast in Christ <clears throat> or glory in Christ? Well, it, it means in... The first place that I count on him, that is, I put all my eggs in the basket. I put my full dependence upon him. I put everything in his hands and in no one else's. So that uh, my, my boasting means that he is, he's the direction of my life. He's the focus of my life. I don't depend on anything in myself, but upon Christ himself. And this was a great break from where Paul had been, because as he's talking about these Jews in verse 2, he's admitting, this is where I was too. I depended upon myself. I depended upon what I did in order to uh, be in God's favor. And it's interesting where... Paul in another place in Galatians speaks of we don't boast in the flesh. We only boast in the cross of Christ. Only the cross of Christ. Only what Christ has done for us. And here's, the, here's one of the, of course, the main problem of, of depending on yourself and trying to be good enough is that we never can and, and we will be lost in the process forever. Because our only means of rescue, our only means of being, of finding the favor of God is that we trust in what Christ has done for us, that Christ has died on the cross for us and was raised for us, which we'll speak of more in a minute. But here's the thing that you end up doing. You end up thinking either, am I good enough? Or are you thinking, I am good enough. You're driven by fear or pride, and many times both. This wallowing turmoil of fear or pride. Just take your pick. It's going to be one or the other. And even family and heritage, as Paul has uh, talks about, can f- make you feel special, different, better than. And part of the reason why God should and would like you over certain other people. We, we can think of ourselves as, here's a lot of people right here, here's God, and I'm at least this far, he had, didn't have to do as much for me as he had to do for other people. We love to just put something of ourselves in there. Something of ourselves. But there are no combos in this deal, right? 
There's no combination that Jesus gets me so far and I get the rest of the way. And I can at least look to myself in part for what, for, for having favor with God. And I'd like to pull in here verse 9 because he speaks of not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Paul doesn't look at Paul. Paul doesn't look at anything Paul has ever done or could ever do. It's not in any way a righteousness that I'm bringing to the table to display before God. It's a righteousness that's totally foreign to me. A righteousness from God through faith in Christ. So it is, it is coming to receive the gift of being accepted by mercy, not coming with a transaction where my goodness commends me to God. My acceptance is only because of mercy. Even Paul doesn't argue his internal zeal. I mean, he had outward conformity and internal passion, but it was all self-driven. It was all focused upon himself. And so he needed a righteousness that was not his own, not to depend on his flesh anymore, but to glory in Christ. For his acceptance with God, he glories in Christ, not himself. To continue to have God's favor, he boasts in Jesus. Here is my favor. Here is who I offer up to you as a basis for you to accept me. It is the Lord Jesus that I cling to and nothing of my own. And that, that righteousness that comes from God for us is what sets us free. Finally, from this turmoil of Fear and pride and fear and pride. And for the first time when we realize I'm accepted not for what I've done, but accepted for what Jesus has done for me. For the first time, I'm set free so that I could really begin to examine the darkest parts of my life and the deepest brokenness of my life. Because I'm doing so in the framework of God's favor upon me. That's not going to change when I discover something else about myself. Because I'm out of that treadmill of trying to keep my performance good enough so that God continues to accept me. That's a different kind of a way. That's a different way to be human. Is to depend upon the Christ who died for us and is raised for us. And so it's not my performance. And the motive that comes from this, so much stronger than guilt or fear or pride or the ambition uh, to be good enough, uh, the strongest motive is thankful love. Thankful love. And it's interesting, uh, Guido de Bres, uh, who wrote uh, largely the Belgic Confession. It was really the first of the Great Confessions, 1561. This predates our Westminster by about 80 years. 
And six years after this, he gave his life as a martyr for the faith. But here's some of the words he wrote in the Belgic Confession. He said, apart from this forgiveness, apart from knowing that you stand righteous before God because of his gift, he said, we will never do anything out of love for God, but only out of love for ourselves and a fear of being condemned. So in order for our obedience to have a God orientation and a God and, and a gratitude toward God and adoration of God, we must be forgiven. We must glory in Christ. We must find our righteousness in him. And so we must uh, we must count on Jesus alone. But then Paul, as a part of this, these aren't really different things. They're different ways to look at the same thing. Uh, we center on Christ. When Paul gets to verses uh, 7 and following, he uses this banking terminology. Uh, and, and he basically says, you know, all those things that I thought were deposits to get me to God, they were really debts against me. And the truth is that the very best things I do are infected with sin. And so the wages of sin is death. And so in all of my personal efforts to try to be better and better and better, I'm just digging my hole deeper and deeper and deeper. And so those things that I was holding up as it's like coming out of the woods and you think you've got this furry little rabbit and you get out there and you realize you have a skunk, you know, uh, and that's what we find out. You know, I've, I've got, I'm a furry little rabbit. I'm wonderful. I'm, I'm all fuzzy and one, you know, I've got good motives. And, and then I find out, golly, it's deep and it's bad inside. I'm so unlike God who sacrifices himself for others. So unlike him. And so we, he even uses this off-color term that, is used for spoiled food or excrement. I count everything as King James has dung. It's probably a better term, term, uh, term for it. So much for Paul's resume, right? My resume, dung. That was it. So the greatest religious achievement, and think how this would comfort Gentiles. Hey, don't think you missed out on anything. My, I, I, I achieved religion like nobody else could or did. But it was nothing. Everything was infected with sin. I didn't see the first thing that I must have God's mercy and forgiveness alone. So now I count everything for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. This literally just reads the surpassing of knowing Christ Jesus. But we supply worth or value. One translation is the supreme good of knowing Christ Jesus. And so in everything that I do, Christ now defines my life. He controls my life. He's my treasure, my hope. Uh, he is the only thing that's worth investing everything in. And everything else is jettisons. It's cargo thrown off. There's a point in a ship when it's sinking that all the valuable cargo you're trying to save goes overboard, right? And that's what happens with us. 
in relationship to Christ, everything is thrown overboard. And that means now in all of our work and our responsibilities and our service and all of our endeavors, we find our significance and purpose in him. In all of these things, we're depending upon him. We're referencing him. We're in league with him. We're here to advance him and represent him. We are seeking to make him known and display him by our lives. So everything's centered around Christ and nothing else. It's Christ. He is the center of everything. And so anything that stands in the way or distracts from him, uh, draws me away, has to be jettisoned. And we can be disturbed or troubled away from Christ. We can be perplexed and confounded away from Christ. We could be entertained or engrossed away from Christ. We could be harassed and mocked away from Christ. We can just be busied and preoccupied away from Christ. The point is that we focus our lives on this person, this person. This is a different way to be a human being. This is kind of, this is really Paul's exposition of his statement in chapter 1, verse 21 For me to live is Christ. And there's not even an is, it's understood in the Greek, but I love this. For me to live, Christ. That's for all of us. For me to live, Christ. A different kind of human being. Attached to the one who is God-man, who rules the world, who died for my sins. And I want you to look down at this passage that I included in uh, Romans 14 in your bulletin there. And... You can see how it's so related to what we're saying, but I wanted to just comment on this last phrase where it says, to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of the dead and the living. Because Paul talks about knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And the amazing thing is that as the son of God, he already ruled the world, okay? He was Lord of creation. The Lord who created all things and rules all things. But notice what he's saying there in Romans. He died and was raised or lived so that he might be your Lord. In some way that he couldn't be your Lord just by creation. It means that he went through that ultimate, absolute suffering in order that you would have a Redeemer, Lord. That you would have a, I died for you, Lord. That you would have a Redeemer, Lord. One who identified with you permanently by becoming a human being and standing in your place, taking on your humanity. And forever, God will be, through Christ, God and man. He did that. He went through that suffering so that he could be this personal, tender priest who knows what it is to go through the things we go through. So that he could be your Redeemer, Lord. 
amazing, the compassion and the love that he has for us. And then finally, we conform to Christ. You'll notice there's a little uh, chiasm, as they call it, but you have an A, B, B, A, so that in verse 10, he talks about resurrection, then he talks about suffering, conformity to death, and resurrection. So, I want to know the power of his resurrection, and this is what he's saying, so that if I know the power of his resurrection, I will share in his sufferings, and I will become like him in the way he died, and I do all of this in the hope that one day I will be raised. This is incredible, that resurrection life gives me the capacity and the joy to identify with Christ and be willing to suffer with Christ and to give my life away in whatever ways I must in order to love other people. That's what resurrection life means. So resurrection life, paradoxically, is a life, if it conforms to his death, his death was one that, was, that gave himself away for the sake of others. And so in my resurrection life, I die, in a sense. You're raised to new life, and it's a life to die for others. Jesus talked about this in John 12. He's talking about himself, and he says, unless, he's talking about his death. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, then it bears much fruit. And then he addresses his followers. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever loses his life for my sake gains it. Very similar to what Paul is saying. When we have resurrected life and we spend ourselves because of it, then we gain our lives. We're the, we're the living people because we're the dying people for others. We're the sacrificing people like Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Christ's death was a suffering for others and only as we are conformed to it do we become like him and give ourselves away to serve others. And you get, it doesn't mean necessarily that you would die, but it means you're willing to go to whatever extent it means to care for others. For some of us, there's a huge dying to self, because we're talking a lot about neighboring now. There's a huge death to self to begin to love and care for your neighbors, to have them in your home, to open up relationships and friendships, and then eventually when the time is right, to speak to them about Jesus Christ. Maybe an answer to a question they may offer you. There's a lot of death to self. But can't you see in putting your seed in the ground and dying, that's where there much fruit can bear? Only in that? And I would suggest to you that resurrection life for us means, of course... Dying for one another in our home, laying our lives down for, to sacrifice for each other in love, laying our lives down to sacrifice for one another in this church, but also laying down our lives 
to sacrifice for those outside our fellowship. That's what resurrection life looks like. And I'll tell you, looking at this, I, uh, I don't know if I want to share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. That's a challenging prospect, isn't it? But then I realize only by his spirit, only by the grace and power of his resurrection can you live that kind of life. So it's okay to start helpless, right? It's okay to realize how much I would have to put to death to do this. It's interesting when the apostles were beaten, they left the presence of the officials in Acts 5 rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. And that's kind of the background for when Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 here, you can look at it toward the end of chapter 1, it's been given you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And that word given you is the same word, uh, same root from the word grace. God has so graced your life, you not only get to believe in him, you have the privilege of suffering for him. That's how God looks at it. So, that's a different kind of human being, isn't it? That's a different kind of religion in which the people, like their Lord, like their God, who has his life in them, give themselves away like he gave himself away. Oh, may God bring it to pass in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, your resurrection life has come to us through the Holy Spirit. And by that Holy Spirit, Lord, we might then share in your sufferings and be conformed to your death in the way we give ourselves away to others, even if it should cost us our lives. Lord, may we have that kind of love for you, that kind of trust in you, that kind of devotion to you. We cannot, will not do it on our own. Oh, Lord, give it to us by your grace, we pray. Amen.